0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio, Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9. It will be a relatively short audio. This time, I'm going to talk about the relationship of fathers, or parents, and their children, and the relationship of masters and their slaves. And this is a follow-on to the discussion of Ephesians 5, which is our context. The last part of Ephesians 5, Paul talked about the relationship of husbands to wives. Now we see, we have in these two sections of scripture, last part of chapter five and first nine verses of Ephesians six, we have a discussion of three hierarchical relationships that are very common in life. Husband and wife, parents and children. Now we don't have master and slave today, but we do have boss and employee. And in which in many situations, are very close to slavery when the situation is not good. I mean, after all, your boss, if you don't do what he says, he can punish you by Depriving you of your job, which deprives you of food to eat, so you know it's not as bad as slavery, but it can be uh, approaching the uh, how bad slavery is. So we can make easy applications to modern day to modern day life, looking at the principles that we see that Paul ex- Paul uh, exposits in these three hierarchical relationships. So we start with Ephesians six verses one through three. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Now, Paul here is quoting the Old Testament, of course, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. This comes from Exodus 20:12, which in the NASB reads this way. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord gives you. It's also repeated in Deuteronomy 5.16, Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged, and, and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now, notice the Old Testament translation. I'm sure that's retz, retz, I think. I don't know Hebrew, but I think that's what the word is for land. And Deuteronomy also is land. You know, it will make Your days will be prolonged on the land, well, in Greek, the word is gay, and they translated earth, because that word can be translated either land or earth as the occasion demands, as the context demands. So in verse 3, in Ephesians 6, Paul says this, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, what that does is it makes it sound like the promises that, that you, in general, will have longer life on the earth as an individual, on the, earth, as, on the planet earth. Well, the original promise was to to the land, and that obviously, long life on the land of Palestine, and that obviously has no application to the Ephesians. So I wonder, maybe Paul is trying to loosely quote the commandment to say, hey guys, you honor your father and mother, you're going to live long on the earth, not just the land. Maybe he did that, I don't know. But at any rate, it's true because people who end up with their lives shortened a lot of times have very very bad relationships with their parents there's nothing worse than having a bad relationship with your parents you can't get rid of them you can't say they're not my parents anymore they'll always be your parents and if you try to do that and suppress your parenthood well then it screws up your relationship with your wife and your kids watch the movies you know it's everywhere people got bad relationships with their father and on the other hand those that have good relationships they're the ones that do well in basketball and so forth I go it all to my father. You hear these sports people say. So it's very important, the relationship of not only son to father, but mother to daughter, mother to father, son to mother. All those relationships are extremely important. I'm not a psychologist, but there's a lot of been a lot of stuff written about that. Now, this word, obey your parents, that's hupataso in the Greek, as I said in the last audio, that's a word that shows military hierarchical subordination so that the lower person obeys the the lower person in rank the person lower in rank obeys the person higher in rank as in the military and it's used also of christians in their relationship to god the christian obeys god the father so it's a strong word it's not a mealy mouth word obey your parents in the lord and of course that assumes that you're obeying your parents in the sphere of their proper authority we don't obey our parents when our father tells us to go out and rob a bank or when our father tells us you can't worship God. Well, a, they've stepped outside this sphere of authority and no Christian has the duty to obey someone who's done that. If a government tells me that I'm not supposed to be a god, well the government can just go jump cuz I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to listen to the government. So again, we're talking about and it, it, we're, we're talking about parents exercising normal parental authority and we're not only that doing that, we're talking about Christian parents because that's who Paul's talking to. He's talking to Christians in Ephesus. Which means that it's much easier for children to submit to Christian parents. Even if the Christian parents might be wrong in a case or two. And even if the child doesn't like doing it. He's going to be much better off if he submits rather than if he doesn't submit. I know I was a rebellious kid. I know how it was. I wish I would submitted to my father and mother a lot quicker than I did. Paul repeats this same Sentiment in Colossians 3.20 Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And in all things means in all things within the sphere of proper parental authority. Of course, not in all things like robbing banks. John Gill, in his inimitable way, says this about obedience. Quote, In things indifferent as much as in them lies, and even in things which are difficult to perform. And this obedience should be hearty and sincere, and not merely verbal, and in show and appearance nor mercenary, and should be joined with gratitude and thankfulness for past favors. Now there's, how'd you like to have a kid that'll do that for you? Actually, I had three kids like that eventually. Not one of them was a little late in coming around, but all three of them were like that. And there's nothing, I don't have all these problems, all these family problems all these people have because my kids were obedient. They never caused me any trouble. Man, I had one son that said he needed to be home at 10, and he was didn't quite make it. And he called me up. I'm so sorry. I'm going to be five minutes late. And I'm, I said, okay, that's good. We'll see you then. And I hang the phone up and I say, oh, thank God. Five minutes late. And he calls and he's stricken with grief. Listen, there's nothing more blessing to parents than to have obedient kids. Nothing. You got kids like that, that the worst you got to worry about is being five minutes late? Can't beat that with a stick. First commandment with a promise is the fifth commandment in the Decalogue, and the Ten Commandments was the first one that has a promise annexed to it, that you live long in the land. Now, there is a Christian mystical idea that obedience is its own reward. I love God, not because of what he gives me, but because of who he is. And sometimes God will you know, put you in a situation like that, where you have to say, I love you, God, even though everything around me is gone to hell. I, I understand that. He can put you through tests, but there's nothing wrong to be happy with rewards coupled with obedience. I mean, that mystical idea is not the norm. I mean, I thank God every day for the stuff he gives me. I'm praying right now to avoid the darn coronavirus, and so far, I haven't got it, and I thank God every day for that. Nothing wrong with being obedient to God and and thanking him for the rewards he gives you for being obedient. Now, I mentioned about the fact that this authority that children are supposed to obey is rightful authority, authority exercise in the, in the sphere of parental authority. There's a phrase in verse 1 that points that out. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. In other words, Christian parents, obey them in the Lord. If your parent asks you to do something that wouldn't be a proper Christian thing to do, let like rob a bank, well, then you're not obeying your parents in the Lord when you do that. We need to pay attention to these restrictions on scriptural admonitions. We turn now to Ephesians 6.4. Paul says this, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice that discipline is not provocation. Instruction about what you're supposed to be doing as a child is not provocation, but provoking your children to anger like complaining because the hair is two millimeters too long, or his posture is a half a degree off of the vertical, or whatever else that parents love to do to fathers, it's not talking about parents, it's talking about fathers, you know, trying, I'm going to discipline you, and by golly, you're going to be straight in the great Santini type of father, I've seen them. I grew up in a neighborhood that one of my friends had one, and oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's not good, he was not a Christian, but anyway, it's easy in the process of discipline to go too far, and just nitpick and provoke your kid, stir him up to anger, instead of just trying to say, hey, I'm doing this for your good, this will help you. I mean, I've seen these athletes, these basketball parents who train their kids to play basketball, and they put them through regimens that are just brutal, but the kid does it anyway and ends up being an NBA star because he knows the father's doing him good. And they don't have, you know, at least the end product doesn't look like there was much animosity between the father and the child. So it is possible to discipline your kids strictly and still not provoke them to anger. It's something every father ought to learn. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out that fathers are likely to be too severe in their parenting and mothers too indulgent. That is the truth. My wife is very gentle in her nature, and we had our third child who was a little bit, well, she was a hellion, to be honest with you. She was, uh, the first two were very gentle, and the third one was, uh, man, she was hell on wheels. And I had a friend of mine point, said to me, he says, you know, Dan, uh, Linda is not, being strict enough with Brittany, I thought to myself, yeah, well, who is? Who can deal with this child of mine? <laughs> she ended up being a godly woman, though, because we disciplined, disciplined her, and she finally broke. It took her a while, and she is a godly mother, got two little kids of her own, got a great Christian husband. She was the one provoking us to anger. I don't know if we provoked her to anger. She provoked us. But at any rate, my point is, is that it was hard for my wife to deal with her because she was... By nature, kind and gentle, you know, feminine type nature. And, and as a result, yours truly had to step in at certain times to deal with certain situations. But now, likewise, I can imagine, especially if I had a, a son, you know, that I, I, that I was too strict. Or I can imagine, I can see why I would provoke him. And that, that's the tendency of fathers, is to be too strict. So they've got to be, a. that's why husbands and wives complement each other with their strengths. Here's the way John Gill puts this discipline idea. He says, quote, by words, excuse me, not discipline, but provocation by provoking. Do not provoke your children to anger. That's the the NASB translation of that. Do not provoke your children to anger. John Gill says this is how you provoke your child. By words, by unjust and unreasonable commands, by contumelious and reproachful language, by frequent and public chidings, and by indiscreet and passionate expressions, nor by deeds, preferring one to another, denying them the necessaries of life, by not allowing them proper recreation, by severe and cruel blows and inhuman usage, by not giving them suitable education, by an improper disposal of them in marriage, and by profusely spending their estates and leaving nothing to them. Wow. How would you like to have a father that does that to you? And they are such fathers that do exist. Mm -hmm. Sounds like Joseph Stalin's father. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. If punished with severity or cruelty, they will only be hardened. They will be only hardened and made desperate in their sins. Cruel parents generally have bad children. He who corrects his children according to God and reason will feel every blow on his own heart more sensibly than his child feels it on his body. You know, that old saying, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I remember hearing that and thinking, yeah, well then, uh, don't hurt yourself. As I was getting ready to receive the blow on my backside. Dad, I don't want you to hurt yourself now, so how about don't hit me and and it won't hurt you so bad. But no, you discipline not because you're happy about it, not sadistically because it's necessary. And it's, what was that book James Dobson wrote, Dare to Discipline? Because parents don't like doing it. Nobody likes to discipline a kid. It's just, it's painful. But it has to be done. If you don't discipline your child, you don't love your child. Now, if you punish whether such that the punishment doesn't fit the crime you don't allow mistakes for immaturity you don't punish kids for immaturity i mean my gosh a kid drops some food off the table when he's a half year old you say i'm going to spank you because you dropped the food on the there was no intent there you know you got to use reason when you punish kids just like a judge you know it's an eye for an eye a tooth for tooth you punish according to the crime not beyond the crime Adam Clark says that cruel parents generally have bad children. I think of Joseph Stalin, who beat the mud, abused Joseph when he was a kid, and Joseph Stalin turned out to be a perfect monster. His job was, at the end of his life, to sit in his office. His aides would present him with lists of people, uh, government officials in the towns, maybe members of the Communist Party, I can't remember, and he would just check the ones he wanted to execute that day, and he did that every day. That was his job. Who am I going to kill today? And if you'll read his biography, his father ooh he was he was a he was a mean son of a gun, so it's extremely important that we that we discipline our kids properly in the Lord. you'll turn out a great son, a great daughter if you do that, but if you don't do it, you could very well produce the next monster that humanity has to deal with. Now, when Paul says, "Fathers do not provoke your children to anger, he is guarding against abuse by the superior in rank. He did the same thing with husbands in ephesians five twenty eight eight when he said, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. He said that right after he told the wives were to submit, so he takes the 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 inferior and the a subordinate relationship and the hierarchical relationship, and he tells them they need to obey. He starts off with that, and as soon as he does that, then he goes to the superior in the rank and says, "But by golly, you got to treat that person that you're in charge of with kindness and gentleness, and you don't provoke them." So he did that with wives. He's doing it here with parents and children. He's going to do. He's going to do. He he did it with husbands and wives and parents and children. He's also getting ready to do it with masters in verse 9 and masters treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him so paul he's just told the slaves to submit to their masters and don't call slave revolts but then he turns around and says but masters you got to treat your slaves just like your master in heaven treats you so he's guarding against abuse. He's not trying to get rid of hierarchical relationships. They will always exist on these earths. And these damnable egalitarian Christians, these feminoxy Christians who are constantly saying that hierarchical relationships are part of the fall, they don't know how to read the Bible, they don't even know how to look around them and, ex- and exert common sense. You don't have egalitarian parent and child relationships, for example. You don't. You're always going to have hierarchical relationships, and they always need to be tempered with kindness, gentleness, and mercy. You're always going to have governors and citizens. You're not going to get rid of that. There is no such thing as a Marxist egalitarian utopia. It will never exist. The only chance that we have in this life of having a halfway decent life is if Christianity and the ethics of Christianity suffuse through the society so that those with authority use it for the good of those they have authority over. We go down to Ephesians 6, 5-8. Slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, that this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Now, first of all, let's talk about slavery. And, of course, this is the verse that non-Christian skeptics say, See there, Paul didn't condone slavery. He didn't condemn slavery. Therefore, he's in favor of slavery. Therefore, Christianity is a slave religion. Why would anybody want to be a Christian? Look, just because Paul regulated slavery doesn't mean he condones it. Cities condone prostitution all the time. They have red light districts. Do you you think the city actually condones prostitution? No, they can't stamp it out, so they regulate it. Paul was not in business of stamping out slavery. Of course, as Christianity spread through the centuries, slavery became less and less. It ended up being feudalism in the West, and feudalism then Evolved into capitalism and slavery was gone. Okay, so but there's lots of things that the Bible regulates without condoning. How about divorce? Jesus mentioned divorce. All right, divorce in cases of adultery. Does that mean Jesus is in favor of divorce? Moses regulated divorce in the Mosaic Law. Does that mean Moses is in favor of divorce? He regulated polygamy. Does that mean he was in favor of polygamy? No, he just had to regulate it. How about warfare? There were rules for just warfare in the Old Testament. Does that mean that Because Moses regulated warfare, that he was in favor of war? Hey, man, in a a utopian society or in heaven, in the final state, there's not going to be divorce, there's not going to be polygamy, there's not going to be warfare, there's not going to be slavery, there's not even going to be bosses. But we're not there yet, and these things have got to exist, and they need to be regulated properly, again, with kindness for those who are in superior hierarchical relationships. Paul says in verse 5, be obedient slaves. Now, John Gill points out that there were two reasons that Paul was particularly concerned to exhort slaves to obedience. Slaves were likely to be impatient and weary of the yoke. Slavery is not a natural condition. People don't like it. You get beaten in a war. Oh my gosh, either I get killed or I'm going to get to be a slave. Or if my father gets broke and he has to sell me into slavery, that's the sort of thing that is unpleasant. And you're being told what to do all the time. You can't go out and start your own business or go out and marry who you want. Oh, yeah, slavery is not fun. And so slaves are likely to be impatient, weary of being a slave. And so they might be tempted to revolt. Revolt, And they might think, well, you know, I'm free in Christ now, and Jesus has given me confident access into the throne room of God and adopted me as a son. That's not that's not compatible with status as a slave. I mean, A slave has confident access into the throne room of God? No, a free person does. I'm going to be free. And then John Gill speculates that there were false teachers going around confusing economic freedom with spiritual freedom, saying, hey, you're free in Christ, so therefore we need to have a slave revolt. Well, now, if there had been a slave revolt, Christianity would have been finished because the, the powers that be back then started saying, well, you know, this Christian religion, all they're doing is stirring up the slaves to revolt. That would have been the end. You and I would not be a Christian today if that had happened. So Paul has got to make people understand that, hey, he says to the Corinthians, if you get a chance to be free, free. If your master emancipates you, you can buy your way out of slavery, do it. He clearly shows in that letter that being free is better than being a slave. But on the other hand, if you don't have the opportunity, just do the best you can in the situation you're in and remain a slave because we don't want to have a slave revolt. To apply that to today... Sometimes you can't find another job to get you out of your horrible situation. So if you're in that situation, then what do you do? You still treat the master well. You do your work not as men-pleasers with eye service, but you do it with sincerity from the heart. Do the best you can in a bad situation, looking for the chance to get out to find another job. But if it's not there, meanwhile, you be a good worker. Spiritual freedom does eventually lead to economic freedom, but it's a slow process, there's examples of where spiritual freedom can coexist with slavery. How about Christians in communist countries or Christians in Nazi Germany? They were slaves, basically. It was horrible what the Chinese communists did or are doing now, actually, but especially back in the times of the Cultural Revolution and the times of Mao Zedong. It was just terrible what he did to Christians. I mean, I've been over there the last twenty in 23 years. I saw a lot of stuff that I wasn't too happy with as a Christian, what, how Christians are being treated over there, but they're free. They might not have political freedom, but by golly, they got spiritual freedom. And they're going to inherit those, those Chinese Christians that are being abused by the Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping, Mao Zedong Ping, and all of these chi-coms over there. They are going to inherit the earth, and Xi Jinping, unless he repents, won't be there with them. So, yeah, we need to remember that. When we become born again, we are spiritually free from our sins from the wage, and from the wages of sin, which is death. We're free. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our earthly circumstances are going to immediately change. They might not. How about the wife who's got a deadbeat, alcoholic, abusing husband? She gets saved. Well, the husband's still likely going to come after her, and she's going to have to... Well, now, that's a bad example again, because that you, you, no wife should ever submit to a husband beating her. She should get a, a firearm and plant it between his eyes. But let's say that we've got a husband who, let's say, is not physically harming the wife, but is just not treating her well, says she's fat, ignores her. Well, you know, what she needs to do is pray for his salvation. If he doesn't commit adultery, according to the Bible, she doesn't have the right to shift her earthly status as a wife. Only when he commits adultery, or if he's an unbelieving partner and says, I can't stand enough of this Christian wife anymore, I'm out of here, in which case she's free also, according to the Scripture. But at any rate, these issues of submission and obedience are always very, very tough in the hard cases. But again, Paul is really not talking about hard cases here, especially with parents and children. He's talking about Christian parents and children and husbands and wives. He's talking about Christian husbands and Christian wives. Now, he's talking about masters. I'm not sure he's talking about Christian ma- masters. So this is a, it's a harder situation here, because if you get a bad master, whoo, that's bad. You don't have much recourse. Notice that the obedience of the slave should be sincere, not by way of eye service as men pleases. In other words, do it just like you serve Christ. You serve Christ because you love him, try to love your master. With goodwill render service. Do him a good job, and you're going to get back. Whatever good thing you do, you're going to get back from the Lord. And that applies to free people as well as slaves. That applies to workers today. You do good things for your boss. I'm telling you, if you're a boss and you've got a worker that really does things for the boss... I remember when I was teaching management, I used to tell my students all the time, the number one rule in management, the number one rule in business is look out for the boss. Do what your boss wants you to do. You might not like it, but do what he wants you to do. And he will reward you most of the time, maybe not all of the time, but most of the time. We go to Ephesians 6, 9, and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Well, I just finished saying that Paul might not have been dealing with Christian masters, but here in verse 9, it looks like he is talking about Christian masters. He doesn't say so in verse 8 when he says slaves should submit to their masters, but now he's talking about Christian masters. So, I mean, I suspect that Not all, of course, not all of the Christians in Ephesus who were slaves had Christian masters, and so they still had to deal with that, with their obedience. But now he switches to Christian slave owners, masters. He says, do the same things to them. What are the same things? Well, he's referring back to the good things he mentioned in verse 8, the previous verse. Ephesians 6, 8, knowing that whatever good each one does, each slave does, slave or free, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. So here's John Gill saying here's some good things that masters can do for their slaves: to instruct them in and use them to religious exercises, to pray with them and for them, to set them good examples, to prevent them falling into bad company, and to allow them proper time for religious duties and with respect to their bodies and outward concerns. To provide sufficient food and proper raiment for them, or to give them their due wages. To take care of them when sick or lame, and show compassion and humanity to them. To encourage those that are prudent, faithful, and laborious and to correct the disobedient and expel the incorrigible. Only John Gill can talk like that. That would be a good master. That's what he should do. I know one thing, Christianity really softens slavery in the South. I read a whole bunch of books, academic books on slavery in the South, and It made a big difference whether you had a Christian slave or not, a Christian master or not a Christian master. I know down on the rice plantations on the coast, like down here in South Carolina, the masters were terrible, and the slavery was horrible. But if, on the other hand, you had a Christian master, they did do. The reason there were so many Christians amongst the slaves is because there were a lot of Christian masters who tried to look out for the slaves the best way they could and uh, didn't treat them so horribly like they did on, on some plantations. So it makes a difference. Christianity made a difference. Just like Christianity make a difference if you're a Christian boss. Christianity is going to make a difference if you're a Christian father. Christianity is going to make a difference if you're a Christian husband. Christianity is not just pie in the sky by and by. Christianity is how you walk your life here on this earth. So Paul continues with the Christian masters. He says you need to give up threatening. That's a lot of times what you do when you have not just slave masters but also Parents, I'm going to take the keys of the car away if you keep doing that. And then, of course, half the time they don't carry through with the threat. That's not the way you deal with people that are under you. Paul is probably referring to unjust threats to punish. He probably doesn't refer to a calm promise to punish if a reasonable request is disobeyed. Because obviously, you can tell your kid, for example, hey, you know, if you don't do that, if you don't, if you don't get. If you don't pass algebra, you can't go out for a month or whatever. You know, there's nothing wrong with that as far as a parent, and same thing with a slave. But I imagine what Paul's talking about here is when the master get, flies off the handle and says, "I'm going to whip your I'm going to whip you with a whip if you don't do what I say to do." Adam Clark says, says this about threatening quote, "If they." talking about slaves, if they should transgress at any time, lean more to the side of mercy than justice. And when you are obliged to punish, let it be as light and as moderate as possible. And let revenge have no part in the chastisement, for that is of the devil and not of God. So once again, we see here Paul is guarding against abuse by superiors in hierarchical relationships, just as he did with husbands. Remember in Ephesians 5:28, he said, Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So he guards against abuse of the hierarchical relationship. Just as he did with fathers, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children. Then ASB has provoked, the Christian study Bible has, don't stir up anger. Don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So he, guards, he warns the superior in the parent-child relationship. Take it easy with your authority. Use it wisely. Don't use it unjustly. And now he does the same thing with slaves. Don't threaten your slaves. Don't threaten them. And do good things to them. Just like in verse 8, Paul told the slave to do good for the master. Well, by golly, master, do good for your slaves. Do good for them. And again, applying that to work. If you're a boss, do good things for your workers. Do everything good for them. Don't threaten them with punishment. If you don't get this report out on time, I'm going to dock your pay 5%. That is no way to manage. I remember seeing a management video when I was teaching business called Management from the Heart. And the whole idea was you care about your workers. I said, well, that's a, that's a unique idea, is it not? Caring for your workers, try to get the best out of them. You do good for them, they're going to do good for you, and everybody's going to be happy. Unfortunately, you don't see a lot of that in the business world. Paul finishes up this section in verse 9 knowing that both their master and yours the slave's master and the master's master is in heaven there is no partiality with him he treats slaves and masters the same way you send you punish you do good i'm going to reward you god the father's not impartial so hey you imitate your master christian slave masters you imitate your master and you be impartial and don't think that just because you're uh, you own somebody that you have the right to treat them unjustly. You do not. You need to be impartial with them. And don't you know? Early ancient in ancient law codes, there was no equality before the law. They would divide the society up into rank. For example, let's say you got nobles, you got non-nobles, common people, common folk, and then you got slaves. Well, there would be different punishments for different. If, if you were a noble, uh, well, we can't give him capital punishment. Then, if we got a common person, well, maybe we can whip him. And a slave, uh, maybe we can give him capital punishment and whipping. That, this is common. You read this all the time in ancient history. The Mosaic Law wasn't like that. The Mosaic Law says, hey, you're poor, you're rich, the same thing applies. Equality before the law. That's one of the big contributions to Western civilization that we got from the Mosaic Law. So, with all these exhortations, Paul is now finished with his admonitions to practical admonitions to the Ephesian Christians. We're going to start in Ephesians 6 verses 10. We're going to talk about the famous armor of God and how to fight against the devil. We'll take that up in the next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.